Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very interesting show here today. today. Let's broaden our minds. I want a cheeseburger. I want a milkshake. I want Taylor Schiff. And entertainment. You like it? There is an academic type of word I can apply. Verisimilitude. Holy moly. I'm hot today. It is Let's Talk Arts and Entertainment. I am your host, Kevin Hart. Got a pretty interesting show for you today. My interview with Hope Cherry is up first, then Way Out Wednesday is back, and also a little bit of trivia. And then after news, going to have a double feature of Batman serials. And then, what's streaming? Terminator 3. But first, here's Hope. Recent couple of weeks, I've talked about a uh, production that is going to be going on at the Hoagland. Uh, that is a socially distanced, pre-recorded production on Songs for a New World. And it looks like we are going to get another similar production from the Springfield Theater Center. I am talking with my friend and the director, Hope Cherry. How are you? Great. 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 How, uh, so uh, what show is going to be coming up at the theater center? Yeah, so the show is called The Spirit of Lincoln, and it was written by Ken Bradbury with music by Roger Wainwright. Um, The show was originally written um, in 2009, was performed uh, in Jacksonville, and um, and they actually did one weekend of performance in the Hoagland, at the Hoagland as well, back then, but um, since then, the show has not been done, um, so it was written by some local local guys Ken and Roger mm-hmm. um, so I was just ready to put something of theirs back on back on a stage again yes it's great and it's great to see um, yeah it's great to continue to see Ken's work because he he's he, he, he wrote a bunch of shows um, some that are yeah. also regularly performed a lot and um, his, his shows are always great and um, so and, it, and it's cool to see something you know by somebody local and of course he wrote a lot of local uh, you know things with uh, Lincoln or other uh, things of that nature. So yeah, um, so yeah, you said this was uh, it was performed in two thousand nine. But so this is uh, yeah, so this would be the, the second production of it then would be yeah nice. Yep. So uh, yeah. so so if you can tell a little bit about the show because I'm gonna be honest, I don't really know a whole lot about it. I read the <laughs> um, I mean I read the audition page like the roles and everything, but I I don't I don't really understand. I'm not sure what the show was entirely about. So could you tell us a little bit about yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's it's funny. I don't know how much to tell people uh, about the show um, because it's kind of hard to explain. So yeah. um, you know, until you until you watch it and and you hear the stories, it makes a little more sense. But essentially, the show is about um, so Ken had um, done a lot of research for this show um, and did both interviews of living individuals who've been affected by Lincoln, you know, obviously who never met Lincoln. Um, But then also he went through archives and did a lot of research on um, letters and, you know, small publications about local people um, and what their experience was with Lincoln at the time that he lived. So all the stories that make up the entire show are all people that lived or currently live within central Illinois. Um, so you get stories from Petersburg, Springfield, Whitehall, um, kind of all over the central Illinois area. And so each scene is basically a different uh, story about Lincoln. Um, and actually Lincoln plays a very small role within the show itself because it's more about how did he impact the people that were around him. Um, 
But so you see each scene kind of just being a different side of how he's affected um, these people. And so you may see one scene that takes place. Uh, there's one scene that takes place with the uh, sight interpreters from uh, from New Salem. You see another scene that's volunteers who work at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum. And then you see another scene that takes place uh, that's... Um, doing an interview with uh, two drummer boys that uh, were part of the Union Army. Mm. And then you see another scene that was with um, William Berry, who was um, Lincoln's uh, business partner in New Salem. They owned a few taverns together. So it's really weird because you just see this jump back and forth in history of present day and and in Lincoln's time and present day and kind of just goes back and forth the whole show. Um, and, and really what's neat about the show, too, is it's all mostly monologues. So um, this is a great show to do during a pandemic. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, minimal dialogue between uh, the other actors on stage. So distance won't really be too much of an issue. Um, and there's also music that weaves in and out of the whole show, too. It's not it's not really a musical, but it does. It's a, like a play with music. Right. Yeah. Because I was going to I was going to ask about that because um, I I mentioned, you know, a couple minutes ago about the uh, songs for a new world. That's a show with four people. Um, but, you know, when I was reading, this, I was like, wow, there is a lot of people in this show and there's dancers and there's music. And so, you, I mean, you explain a lot of it is monologues, but um, especially in terms of because there will be auditions for this. How are the auditions and the rehearsals and the performance? How are you guys going to do that with all these uh, uh, pandemic restrictions in place? Yeah, so um, so actually the dance auditions will be completely virtual, um, and that's, again, for safety's sake for the dancers, just because we don't know how many dancers want to come out, so we don't want a room of 20 dancers, you know, breathing heavy and trying to wear masks and stuff, so, yeah. um, so we're doing virtual for the dance auditions, and then for um, cast auditions... Um, because those are separate, so we're casting dance uh, dancers and cast separately. And um, the cast has to come in, they have to wear a mask the whole time that they're in the audition, um, and we will um, maintain distance between everybody within the room as well. So, um, and that's going to be pretty much the whole time throughout the rehearsal process and into, like, our tech week of our show. We're going to maintain distance as much as possible. Um, we're going to keep masks on even when we're on stage and in costume. Um, we are not taking off our masks until the performance. And that means you'll be backstage, you'll have your mask on, you'll take your mask off, you'll go on stage, do your scene, come back off, put your mask back on. So I really want to reduce the risk as much as possible for my cast, for my crew. I want to keep it as safe. Um, for everybody involved, um, even though we don't have an audience, I just want to keep it as safe as we can. So, oh yes, absolutely. The so is this going to be? Will it be pre-recorded, or are you guys going to like perform it live and live stream it? Yeah, so we will we will pre-record it. Um, it'll be we're planning to record on um, October 10th. So that'll be our like one quote unquote performance. Right. And then, um, and then we're hoping we'll take that footage, have it all edited together, because we're hoping to get a few kind of angles um, within the show, just because, um, again, the whole premise of the show is very much about storytelling, very much about um, kind of that personal experience. And so we want to get oh, yeah. some, you know, shots that kind of reflect 
part of that storytelling. Yeah. Anyway, people's um, faces, and, facial, you know, acting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Things that you don't always get to see when you're sitting in one stationary spot in an audience. Um, and then what we're hoping to do is then, yes, yeah, stream it. Um, we're thinking about... Um, we're thinking about approaching um, local drive-in movie theaters to see Ooh. if we can show it there. Um, maybe um, we're hoping to maybe to talk to a few um, TV stations um, that might be willing to show it on like a local, uh, a local, um, you know, a cable. Oh yeah, show. totally. So. Either, um, yeah, yeah, some some sort of network, um, exactly. public access. Yeah, oh, absolutely, you could show it. Yeah. Because I think the thing is, too, is, you know, part of it is so many people, especially in central Illinois, are still fans, of course, of fans are of Lincoln. There's mm-hmm. tons of fans of Lincoln in central Illinois. Oh, yeah. And there's also tons of fans still of Ken Bradbury's. Oh, yes. And I know if we were doing this show live, there would be, you know, tons of people wanting to come and see Ken's show, you know, coming from all over central Illinois driving to see this show. Mm-hmm. And so even in the midst of a pandemic, my goal as a director is still to bring that um, to still bring you know Ken Bradbury still bring Abraham Lincoln to um, to the doorsteps of everybody that wants to be there so um, and again doing it as safely as we can so yes well absolutely I'm excited that's this is going to be this is going to be a great show I'm so it, that's it's going to be great when are the auditions and when is the performance plan to at least uh go live with uh, with streaming yeah so our auditions are going to be on um, Saturday August 15th um, for dance auditions those will be um, need to be turned in by uh, Friday evening so the 14th um, and then we're hoping to cast either that Sunday or Monday depending on kind of the amount of auditions we receive and then um, rehearsals will begin at the end of August we'll rehearse through September, August um, September and into October, um, the performance will be on the 10th. And then we're hoping um, we can have the uh, the footage ready to go by the end of October to be shown in a couple different um, a couple different avenues. All right. Well, we'll be watching and we'll be uh, keeping in contact to uh, see all the updates going on with the show. Hope, thank you so much for joining me. This was great um, and I'm excited to see the show. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kevin. We'll be right back. America's <laughs> sweetheart Ellen may not be as sweet as we think she is. That is, she, yeah, it, she's got some trouble. What's she going on? It's been some no bueno for her between bullying, racism, sexism on the set, and so now there's an external investigation by CBS, the company that owns the Ellen Show, to investigate all these claims to the point now where they're trying to figure out who may be the next person to take over for Ellen. James Corden's name's been thrown out there, but there's an online petition for one Eric Andre. I love Eric Andre. For those who don't know Eric Andre, you may know him as the character Deke from uh, Two Broke Girls. If that doesn't ring a bell, he's been hosting an avant-garde, kind of almost... Zach Galifianakis between two ferns type talk show on Adult Swim for years. Yes. Great comedian, really interesting cat. And so an online petition has started for Eric Andre to take over for Ellen. I am behind this idea 100%. Me too. 
because you can keep the format the same. Uh, Eric Andre, much better dancer than Ellen. Oh, sorry, God. Ellen. Uh, I'm I, not sorry. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see Eric Andre be on network television. Oh, my goodness, yes. I don't know if there's enough censors in the world to be on the buttons for that show, yeah. but I am all in for it. Yeah. So, so Matthew McConaughey, what are you, what are you doing these days? Investigate three eleven, <laughs> and then like the set blows Is up. That, that, that's exactly what would happen. I love every part of that. I love every part of that. So please sign the petition. And let's make Eric Allen. That, that that's please. the petition. That's make the petition. Yep. Over sixty thousand signatures right now. So we let's make this happen. Let's make it happen, folks. Yes. All right. If we had enough fun. There's yeah. enough positivity. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Let's bring it. Let's bring it down a little bit, shall we? Oh God. See, here's the thing. We have brought you a lot of stories these past couple of weeks of uh, national events, and you know, even across the world. But now we have some. Oh, some way out. Wednesday local. Way out Wednesday local with. Uh, oh, if any of you are at this, you owe us a handwritten apology. <laughs> Hundreds gather without masks for the annual White Trash Bash. Now, people were out on boats. They were out in the water. No masks. Um, it was the 10th annual, by the way. The 10th annual White Trash Bash. And I'm not blaming you. If you want to be white trash, that's your decision. But when you're putting other people in danger. Here's, here's my other beef with it. This should be Decatur's event. Yeah. Why is this happening? <laughs> Why is this happening in East Peoria? Why? I mean, come on. We have it right down the road. I mean, seriously, that's that's where it should be. Were they boating to the event or were they just like, hey, can you make it there by boat? I don't think so. No, but yeah. So uh, obviously no masks being worn at the White Trash Bash. Uh, they had 500 party goers. And, and here's the thing. If you if you want to party, God bless you. you can still, here's the thing. You could still party. All right. Uh, you just take the mask down for a second, shotgun your beer, and then put the here's the so you shotgun three or four at a time. Take them and put the mask off. Make it a game. How many can I shotgun in the thirty seconds without my mask? On? Mask, yeah, mask probably absorbs some of the beer if you miss your mouth anyway. Exactly. So you can still drink it. Right, you have a little little flavoring left over in your mask. Y'all are gonna ruin this. We're gonna have to go back to phase three because of this. This. Stupid! Oh my goodness! I'm getting worked up. This is a fun. We should be having exactly, fun. exactly. Take a deep breath, my All right. friend. Take a deep breath because this next one is a feel-good story, though. That's for good. way out Wednesday. Yes, deep it is. Breath. Yes, it is. People helping people. People right here. helping people. That's what we like to see on Way Out Wednesday. And this is what's happening here. You may think you're good at making deals. You may think. Are you this woman though, Demi Skipper? Because. I just love her name. Demi Skipper. Cause she's... Sounds like a boat that would have been at the White Trash Bash. Yeah. But it's actually a person who's trading things. Yeah. and But she's not trading the virus. No. No. She, you know, her name is Aptly Skipper because she's skipping out on all these prices and everything that she would need. She um, has has been trading. She, she began a, a trading challenge, as she calls it, with a hairpin. And she won't stop until she has traded up these objects to a house okay uh, th- which uh, it sounds weird but um so she takes something that she has and then says hey i have a vacuum it's an interesting trade uh-huh. and, and uh, talking about that phone there she traded an iphone 11 pro max for a dodge ram van but here's like the, here's the thing we don't know the condition of the van we don't but it probably was a pretty sweet van i would assume so i'm assuming airbrushing and by the way she may have already made the house then because yeah. i've seen people with their airbrush vans who use them 
used yeah. them at houses before. Yeah. So she may have already accomplished her goal. Yeah, and she is uh she is tearing it up on uh TikTok. I hope TikTok stays around, yeah. you know, so people can see the, you know, what's what she's doing because she has millions of followers and people are people are saying, "Oh my goodness." Then people are she's inspiring people and she was inspired by somebody else too. So, you know, watch if somebody wants to trade something, you know, make sure the Bardish system is alive and well still here in the 21st century. And we love to see it. Yes, we do. And we love to see this. We end back to the just ridiculous if you were going to try to attempt to fake your death to avoid jail time, you would think if you went through all of that, you would make sure everything would be spelled correctly on your death certificate. <laughs> you would hope so. But unfortunately, a uh, gentleman, Robert Berger, tried faking his death to avoid the jail sentence, but the phony death certificate his lawyer submitted had a glaring spelling error that made it a dead giveaway for fraud. A dead giveaway for fraud. Hey-o. He's not the one who's dead, though. What did they, what did they spell wrong on it? What was, what, was, what was so bad about this death certificate? What? Well, I think uh, basically what it boiled down to was uh, the in and outs of what he needed to be uh, wasn't there. And so when the misspelling was there, they go, uh, that doesn't make sense. Registry was spelled registered registry. Ooh. Yeah, there's an extra mm. I in there. There are also inconsistencies in the font type and size that raise suspicion. So not only was it misspelled, his death certificate looked like a ransom note that someone <laughs> had cut out of a magazine. <laughs> if you're going to try to do this stuff, you got to make sure literally you dot your I's in the right places and cross the correct T's. Yeah, and don't use Comic Sans. People can tell. They don't oh, use yeah, Comic Sans yeah. on bir- death certificates or, yeah, that, or birth certificates. Just using that should get you rearrested. The Oscar Mayer Wienermobile trivia. Would I be able to do the trivia right now? See how well I yeah, sure, stack up? Yeah, all right. All right, let's do it. So feel free to pick whichever category speaks to your heart. Okay, this is Hot Dog Highways. Yep, that's that's the one. So right. what we'll do is you can push that button right over there. All right. And then whichever question comes, number comes up is the question we will correspond to. All right. This is, That's I hit this. Up. All right. Mm. All right. All right. We got question number nine. How long is a Wienermobile typically in one city? A week. A week? A week is correct, Kevin. Really? Very wow. Good. Yes, yes. We've been um, <laughs> on a two-week schedule. Um, since heading back on the road. So we were in Springfield for two weeks. Our next city will be in for two weeks, but usually we're on a one-week kind of in-and-out kind of a game. All right, nice. Yeah, yeah. Cool. You want to try one more? I'll try one more, yeah, absolutely. Right. which category? Do you want Hot Dog Highways again or one of the other three? We'll do, let's do Hot Doggers. All right, let's do you this. got it. All right, push that button. All right, Kevin, question seven. How many total events do the Hot Dogger teams attend in a year? 200. 200. Ooh, close, close, but we got a little higher than that. We okay. hit thousands of events. So thousands. 1, okay. I was uh, a little off. That's <laughs> yeah. all right. You know. We have six close. teams, so mm-hmm. we cover a lot of ground. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 12 hot doggers all over the country. So. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, I awesome. think that still deserves a sticker for your valiant effort. In yes. Trivia. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. Yes, you're very welcome. Going to break for news, and when we come back... Bottom of the bargain bin, double feature with Batman.
Welcome to Bottom of the Bargain, Ben. The Caped Crusader has gone through quite a varied cinematic history. In fact, when we're able to go see movies in the theater again, there's going to be a new Batman movie with Robert Pattinson. Yeah, you can say what you want, but there was a petition for Michael Keaton not to play Batman before the internet back in 1989. So, despite the inaccuracies compared to the source material, that movie was a hit. So, we should give it a chance. This new one, I mean. But, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't be given a chance, unless you're a Batman superfan and also a glutton for punishment. The original Batman serials. No, not talking about the 1960s TV show with Adam West. That's the Dark Knight compared to this trash. I'm, of course, talking about the serialized 1943 adaptation that played in theaters, often ending on some cheesy, sometimes even literal cliffhangers, only to have Batman or Robin escape immediately and easily the next week. These aren't good and have aged extremely poorly from the bare-bones production quality to the extremely racist depiction of Japanese people. Tolerate this inefficiency if you cannot carry out your assignment. I will get someone else to place. That's okay with me. I'm fed up with your Jap New Order anyhow. Yes, this movie was made in the middle of World War II, so instead of using the Joker as the main villain, a new villain named Dr. Daka was created. His aim is to literally brainwash Americans to follow the rule of then-Emperor Hirohito with a mind-control device. So, this serial explained to you is pretty terrible, but if you didn't know anything about it, you might get suckered into buying it. Look at this packaging! The DVD box set came out on DVD in 2007, right around the time Batman Begins was getting released on DVD. Like, this is just shameless. That's not the first time they've pulled this, either. It was released on VHS back in the 1980s, and even as far back as 1965... They re-released them to lead up to the Adam West movie in 1966. My dad actually saw this re-release and said they knew it sucked back then, too. There are 15 episodes of this serial in total, and they were all played back-to-back-to-back in theaters and on home video. The DVD box that I got was very cheap. I actually, yes, got it out of the bargain bin. And yeah, it's a good bargain because it has the other serial from 1949 making over eight hours of this crap for about $2. For obvious reasons, there was far too much of this for one video, so this review will be in several parts as I show you the horror that is Batman, the serialized movie. Episode 1 has a shot of Batman at his desk in the Batcave with bats flying around on strings, probably held up by fishing poles. The lighting is also off, so everything is super bright. It's the perfect visual representation of how terrible this movie is going to be. Also, since the serial was made during World War II, Batman and Robin are touted much more as American heroes than usual, or probably ever. Hidden headquarters of America's number one crime fighter, Batman. Yes, Batman, clad in the somber costume which has struck terror to the heart of many a swaggering denizen of the underworld. You'd expect it from Captain America, Superman, or even Wonder Woman, but it's so silly when it's Batman. They're even considered secret government agents in this version. The first episode sets up one of the driving forces of the whole serial. Bruce's girlfriend, Linda Page, needs help finding her uncle Marty, who we know is abducted by Dr. Daka's Japanese gang. When I said this serial was racist, here's how they introduce Daka's lair. This was part of a foreign land transplanted bodily to America and known as Little Tokyo. Since a wise government rounded up the shifty-eyed Japs, it has become virtually a ghost street. Yeah, Daka and his henchmen are referred to Japs throughout the serial, and often identified by their eyes or their skin color. It'd be bad enough that Daka's just a white guy with his eyes slanted and an awful cartoon voice, but throwing slurs around as often as they do, and even referring to the U.S.'s internment camps as a good thing, is just horrible. It really could make this unwatchable for a lot of people, and 
Honestly, I wouldn't blame you. Dr. Daka hides in this racist amusement ride museum in Little Tokyo. What if someone accidentally stumbles upon it? They'd be killed? They'd be brainwashed too? Are the workers just paid off to look the other way? It's so confusing. So anyway, Dr. Daka needs radium for his ray gun and steals it from the Gotham Foundation. Batman and Robin thwart this plan, of course, and we get to see our first cliffhanger. This will be a common theme. Batman falls off the roof and it looks like he's gonna die. But when you tune in next week, he's fine. He just fell onto some scaffolding. That would still hurt. But after the fall, and now we're in episode two, Batman and Robin recover Daka's ray gun and hold the criminal who had it hostage for information. And Batman is being, like, really creepy here. Bruce also nearly kills Alfred with the ray gun. <laughs> you almost turned it into dust. That's funny. The criminal is then taken to the police. Daka, upset that he no longer has a secret weapon, thinks that Linda, who by the way works at the Gotham Foundation, might know. So he has her kidnapped by someone pretending to be Uncle Martin. Batman and Robin, there's some sleuth detective work, find where she is hidden, and make their grand entrance. Things are looking tough for our heroes, though. So you know what that means? Another cliffhanger. But not before the slowest, and I do mean slowest, electric spark in the history of cinema fails to get Batman before he jumps. Episode 3 is where we start to get progressively weirder. We get to see Dr. Daka use his mind control device on an underling who once again has failed his task because of the dynamic duo. It's a mix of the electric chair and the hairdryer from Blade Runner. Then they put a little metal hat on him and voila! He's under the doctor's control. Batman and Robin use Alfred as bait in a newspaper ad to lure the criminals to them. It backfires when someone pulls a gun on Alfred and our heroes intervene. In the pocket of one of the guy's jacket is a map of a train that they're going to blow up. Batman and Robin get there just in the nick of time. But trouble strikes when Batman is bopped on the head with a rubber monkey wrench and knocked out. The train is coming. Oh no! What's going to happen? Just kidding. Tune in next week. This is episode three, and you can already tell how annoying this is. Twelve more to go. Luckily, there's a play-all option on the DVD, but can you imagine having to wait a week just to watch Robin throw Batman into the river? <sighs> Nothing real interesting happens in episode four. Daka uses a trapdoor to kill someone by dropping them into a pit of alligators, which may or may not factor in later in the serial. Aside from that, Bruce pretends to be a Middle Eastern fortune teller and engages in a painfully bad car chase where he nearly blows up a car with that ray gun. Oh, Batman survives, by the way. Episode 5. Episode 5 is nutty and probably my favorite one so far. Batman and Robin use science to discover secret writing on this paper, leading them to an airplane hangar, hopefully to thwart the bad guy's plans. But... What Daka does in this episode makes a Rube Goldberg machine look like pressing a button. Dr. Daka receives a corpse from Japan. He then brings the dead body back to life for like 30 seconds so he can give his information in a picture slide and then he just dies again. Okay, 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 stop! Forget the ray gun or the radium or even the mind control. Dr. Daka has the ability to bring people back to life, and he uses it because he didn't want to make a phone call. What? No, like, nobody's saying, hey, 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 this is maybe the biggest scientific discovery ever. So, 
DACA brainwashes some more racist white people and sends them to steal a new airplane the Japanese are trying to rip off. Batman stows away on the airplane while Robin fights the brainwashed men. The plane, of course, takes off, and Batman fends off these henchmen in the actual plane. The army says, oh no, they stole the plane. Shoot it down! And yes, I don't have to tell you that Batman survives the plane crash, but like, he didn't even jump out. He just survives. In episode 6, Daka is still trying to get radiant. Like, dude, you can bring people back to life. You have mind control. Work on that. Forget about the radium. But Daka's upset since the U.S. sunk one of their submarines. More propaganda. The criminals find their way to a lot of radium. Again. But, again, are thwarted by the dynamic duo. Alfred even goes undercover this time. And Batman dies in a fiery explosion. Just kidding, he's back the next week. Episode 7 sees Dr. Daka's men kidnapping the man who Alfred was impersonating because, surprise, surprise, he has access to radium. Again with the radium. Batman tracks him to a laundromat, I think, and almost gets crushed by an elevator. Ah, oh, crap. Yeah, there's eight more episodes of this trash, but hey, maybe this is like one of those shows where the episodes get progressively better. Oh, still sucks. Ugh, I'll actually have to take a break from Batman serials after this one. I'm aware there's also one from 1949, which I have, and I'll also look at it, but I'll review some other things in between. That being said, here's Batman Part 2. But first, how did that cliffhanger get resolved? Robin hits the stop button on the elevator. Yay! Could have put more effort into explaining how he gets out or do a creative intro, but I wanted to match the effort of this series. So, episode 8 brings back this guy, Colton, who has a radium mine. Alfred had pretended to be him previously, and now Daka has his hands on the actual man. He attempts to turn him into a zombie, but Colton just decides, eh, it's easier to show him where the mine is, so... And hey, I mean, these characters aren't just racist against Asians. They also have to be a dick to this Native American guy. Hey, sit and pull. We got any water? Colton leads them to his cabin and his mine. Bruce, Dick, Alfred, and Linda make their way to his cabin to try to find Colton as well. He leads the criminals into the mine with him and he... Yoink! He hides. He's able to escape to a trap door leading to his cabin, but Batman and Robin have already made their way into the cave and a Three Stooges-esque farce with none of the humor ensues, leading everyone into the cave at once and being blown up with a bomb. Cliffhanger time! Don't worry, Batman escapes with everyone except Colton, who dies? Ooh, oh damn. Oof. Well, also, Bruce just missed everything. What a coincidence. Episode 9 brings us a new disguise for Bruce that is hilariously bad. He goes undercover as a criminal named Chuck White. His outfit is a hat, some ratty clothes, and a fake nose. No one will ever know. I'm serious. He fools literally everyone in the episode, including Linda. So, not much happens in this episode. Totally not. Bruce goes to this bar on a dock and tries to start trouble, but he's saved by Robin only to die. But not really. Just that pesky cliffhanger. Alright, episode 10. Mr. Chuck White heads back to this criminal hideout to hear about a MacGuffin clock device that's going to be airdropped at one of the three cheap locations that they were allowed to shoot at. Whoa, that's not how airplane physics work. 
Hey man, every time Chuck is involved, the Batman shows up. What a coincidence. Takes an entire episode with the crooks to catch on, by the way. Episode 11 gives us more Chuck White, who gets sprung from jail from the last episode. He meets with a villain who wants to get at the Batman. Chuck is able to get information on one of the crooks' hideout before he's bailed out. Okay, well, back to crime fighting. Oh no! Wait, no cliffhanger. Okay, Bruce makes it, but no scratches or anything. Okay, whatever. So, Batman and Robin make their way to the villain's hideout and see their communication equipment. So, now, after another exciting fight, they find out Batman's identity. Almost. Another running gag or joke is that Dr. Daga has grown extremely impatient with the crew being unable to kill Batman. These crooks, thinking Batman and Robin are knocked out with the police coming, they set some explosives to kill him. Batman's actually awake, though. He was whacked pretty hard with that gun. And, uh, holds him there before they escape through the floor. So, Batman just lets that guy die. Okay. Those who may not be aware, Batman isn't really supposed to kill people. Not that this serial cares about getting the characters right, because Batman does plenty of killing in this. In episode 12, the plot starts to heat up for our main characters, and honestly... This is where it gets less boring. Dr. Daka lures Linda to the place where her Uncle Martin used to work before he was arrested. The place gets set on fire accidentally when Batman and Robin intervene and some dumbass drops a cigarette on this flammable stuff here. This stellar editing is supposed to make you think Batman was crushed by that flaming wood. He survives, of course, and makes his way to Daka's lair in episode 13 after scaring a location out of this guy in the Batcave. Linda gets turned into a zombie and Batman falls into a pit of spikes that will be closing in on him. What will happen in episode 14? Well, Linda's still a zombie, but Robin saves Batman with a crowbar. The mind-controlled Linda lures Batman to this apartment with a handwritten note. Batman's knocked out and put in a wood coffin. The coffin's taken back to Daka's lair and dropped into a pit of alligators. So, surely Batman couldn't have survived that. Well, and don't call me Shirley, here's where some nonsense happens. Episode 15, the finale. Thank God. The first five minutes are dedicated to retelling the last five minutes of episode 14, but instead of, oh, here's how Batman got out, they just... Uh, show more footage of Batman escaping with the help of Robin that was not there before, and then putting the crook in the coffin in his place, and then killing him. Now, keep in mind, this is the only episode to pull something like this. The rest of the episode plays out how you might expect. Batman and Robin finally find the opening to the lair, and they thwart Dr. Daka and his henchmen, but not before throwing plenty of slurs around. Linda and her uncle are de-zombified, and all seems well except Daka escapes his ropes and holds Linda at knife point. Batman tells Alfred to close the door, but he accidentally hits the trapdoor button, and Daka falls to his death, getting eaten by the alligators. Batman gives the police all the credit, and he escapes, and Bruce comes back. Hey, I always miss the Batman. Everyone laughs despite the murder of Daka. And that's the end. Ooh, Wow. This was a hard watch, and not just because of how many episodes there were, but, like, how boring this is. Boring. It's well over four hours if we watch them all back to back. There's maybe one hour of story in the whole thing. Then there's some action, and honestly, half of it is recaps. Um, ugh. It, it, listen, it's fun to see the first ever screen appearance of Batman, and there are some influences that would go on to the later series, such as the Bat-Signal and the Bat-Cave. But the constant racism, the horrible production value, and the lazy writing make it a tough watch. 
Can't really recommend these to anyone other than a hardcore Batman fan who's just genuinely curious. Alright, that was the Batman serials from 1943. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next time. Take a short break, then we'll come back with What's Streaming. The third movie. I know, it's usually bad. Spider-Man 3. I think it's a little better than people say, but it's yes, disappointing compared to 1 and 2. Godfather Part 3. Disgraceful. But here's a third movie that I think you should give a chance, or maybe another chance. Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines. Okay, put your pitchforks down and hear me out. It's not anywhere as good as Terminator 1 or 2, but compared to some of the recent Terminator movies, yeah, it looks a little better, huh? I will say, though, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, is the best Terminator sequel post-Terminator 2, in my opinion. I'd love to do an in-depth review of that series soon. However, that being said... Terminator 3 was not well received for a number of reasons, but there seems to be three main ones that I've seen. Number one is that the date of Judgment Day was postponed and they don't give an explanation as to why. Arnold says, Judgment Day is inevitable. And they leave it at that. And yes, that is a pretty lame excuse, I agree. Sarah Connor, number two, was written out of the movie because she didn't want to be part of it. Number three, there are a lot of jokes that don't land and are just awkward. I don't think it ruins the movie, but okay. Here is a spoiler filled recap to bring you up to speed on Terminator 3. In The Terminator from 1984, a Terminator is meant to perfectly imitate a human. It's played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's sent back to then-present-day 1984 by the evil supercomputer Skynet to kill Sarah Connor, the mother of the leader of the Resistance, John Connor. Kyle Reese, the father of John, is sent back not only to protect Sarah, but also to fall in love with her and ultimately get her pregnant. He dies protecting her, and she now lives on the run and prepares John for the future. Don't think about the timeline too much, or you'll short-circuit. Time travel movies tend to play fast and loose with the rules. Between Terminator 1 and 2, Sarah is captured by the police and put in a mental hospital, and John is placed into foster care. Arnold's back is the same model, but a different Terminator coming off an assembly line. He is instead sent back to protect John, and his enemy is played by Robert Patrick, a slick new liquid metal Terminator called the T-1000 that can shapeshift into anyone and makes knives and stabbing weapons out of his arms. Sarah is broken out of the mental hospital, and now the trio want to get the jump on Skynet by preventing its creation by going after the man responsible, Miles Dyson. Sarah is unable to bring herself to kill him, but he ultimately sacrifices himself and destroys his work. The plot beats are very similar, but the main difference is the action and special effects are top-notch. Terminator 1 was a very low-budget movie, to the point where director James Cameron shot the movie with mono sound to save on money. And later DVD releases remastered the soundtrack and stereo, but the success of the movie was so great that Cameron was given mountains of money to do the sequel and went all out on the CGI and the action scenes. CGI which, to this day, is still lauded as some of the best, next to movies like Jurassic Park. So with all of that in context, how does Terminator 3 fit in? The movie starts with John Connor explaining how he lives off the grid in constant fear of being caught by a Terminator despite having thought he stopped Judgment Day. A new Terminator called the TX has come to present day 2003 and she is played by Kristana Loken. Since John is unable to be located, the TX starts targeting John's future lieutenants in the war. For example, we see her roll up to a fast food restaurant and shoot one of them through the drive-thru, and in another scene she goes to a house party and shoots a brother and sister who would have become important in the war. Arnold is back, but his entrance is rather silly. It's worth noting that in this universe, you have to travel back through time naked. Nothing that is not living will go through. 
It's a running gag that the Terminator or the future soldier has to find their clothes from some pedestrian. It's basically a horror movie in the first one. Arnold rips a guy's heart right out of his chest. But the third movie shows us one of the campier moments. Arnold goes to a strip club and steals the clothes off a male stripper. Your clothes. Talk to the hand. Now. The TX's next target is John's eventual wife, Kate Brewster, which we don't find out she's the wife until later in the movie. She works at an animal hospital that John's raided for pain pills. Kate catches him and locks him in a cage, but this is where both Terminators diverge on the location. A few action scenes later, and we're into the crux of the plot, which is that Judgment Day is inevitable. And the only option is to hide and wait for the bombs to fall, and then start the fight. Skynet has been rebuilt as a military program, linking every computer in the world together, and... Oh yeah, you know how that's gonna come. You know what'll eventually come of that. Luckily, Kate's dad is the program director at Cyberdyne Research Systems, so the gang think they can convince him to shut everything down and prevent Judgment Day again. Although it's great to see Arnold, Linda Hamilton's Sarah Connor is nowhere to be found. She was married to James Cameron in the first two movies and got divorced. Her falling out led to her not wanting to do any more Terminator movies until an uncredited cameo in Terminator Salvation, and then ultimately returning for Dark Fate. So, she was written out. John explains she died of cancer somewhere between Terminator 2 and 3. I guess given the situation, there really wasn't much they could do, but I wish we could have gotten a better send-off for her. I mean, hell, they even got Dr. Silverman from the first two movies to make a cameo. It doesn't matter now, since they reboot the timeline every five years now, it seems like. So, the rest of the cast is fine. I really don't have any complaints. No, uh, no one can play robotic quite like Arnold, and that talk to the hand bit comes back in play a little later in the movie. And Arnold does it only the way Arnold would. It's very campy, and some might even say it's cringy. And yeah, the whole talk to the hand thing does date the movie somewhat. But it's. I don't know. It's quite endearing. Hey, are you gonna pay for that? Talk to the hand. So the TX is intended to kill other machines. She's described aptly by John as an anti-Terminator Terminator. <laughs> She's a mix of the T-800, that's Arnold's model, and the T-1000. She can still shapeshift in a similar manner, but her main ability is that she can control machines remotely. She sticks a long data spike into a piece of machinery and inserts data and some sort of nanotech into it, and she can now control it. She also calls the telephone number and speaks in dial-up noises. Okay. You might find that a bit out there, but listen, this is a series with time travel and cyborgs. I can roll with it. The TX's ability to control, control machines does make for some interesting car chases and some action scenes. Some awesome action scenes. People are usually very, very quick to dismiss this movie, and I can understand their ambivalence towards this entry in the series, but I would give it a second chance or at least check it out if you haven't. It's streaming on Netflix as of this, and there are definitely worse ways to spend an hour and 49 minutes. Thanks for listening in. Let's Talk Arts and Entertainment Weekend Edition is every Saturday at 11 and Sunday at 1 p.m. See you next week.